0: You should be able to be poor. You should be able to be doing something illegally that is nonviolent and live to face a day in court.
1: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show, and during the summer, we are running a big summer fundraiser, so if you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit bestoftheleft.com and click on the giant summer fundraiser banner. You can't possibly miss it. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Democracy Now!, The Bradcast, Code Switch from NPR, and Act
2: Out!, Well, our next guest writes, quote, "...American policing is in crisis. Alton Sterling and Philando Castile are two of the most recent casualties in what's become a deadly epidemic. It may surprise you to learn who wrote those words, not a Black Lives Matter activist, but a former big-city police chief. Norm Stamper is the former police chief of Seattle, Washington. He joins us now from Los Angeles, California, his new book, To Protect and to Serve, How to Fix America's Police. He recently wrote an article for Time magazine called Police Forces Belong to the People. His previous book headlined Breaking Rank, a top cop's expose of the dark side of American policing. Uh, Norm Stamper, welcome back to Democracy Now! As you look at what happened in the last week alone, not to mention um, what has happened in the years since you were the chief of police in Seattle. Um, What are your comments about how police are trained to deal with communities of color?
3: You know, the training of police officers is is a, a very prominent theme in the conversation about police reform. And it's, of course, very, very important, but there are much deeper uh, and important issues, as far as I'm concerned, namely those associated with the institution itself, the structure of the organization, the culture that arises out of that structure. It's paramilitary, it's bureaucratic, it insulates and isolates police officers from the communities that they are here to serve.
4: So, what would you say, Norm Stamper, are some of the systemic problems of police violence? And what do you think has led to—you refer to the paramilitary paramilitary, uh, uh, nature of the police forces now—what do you think accounts for that?
3: I think what accounts for it is—there are several factors, one of which is that, uh, in 1971, Richard Nixon famously proclaimed drugs. Uh, public enemy number one, drug abuse, and declared all-out war on drugs, which was really a declaration of war against his own people. And overwhelmingly, young people, poor people, people of color, suffered uh, and have continued to suffer over the decades as a result of a decision to put America's frontline police officers on the front lines of the drug war as foot soldiers. And then we wonder why there's such a strain in the relationship between police and community, and particularly uh, 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 those communities. Uh, that are entrenched in poverty and other economic disadvantage, communities that historically have been neglected or abused or oppressed by their own police departments. So, we really intensified and escalated uh, the, the, the country's war against poor people you know, with that drug war. And we have spent trillion prosecuting that war since the 1970s, incarcerated literally tens of millions—please hear that figure—tens of millions of, of, of disproportionately young people and poor people and people of color. What do we have to show for it? Drugs are more readily available at lower prices and higher levels of potency. It's time for us to end that drug war. That began the militarization of policing, without a doubt. 9-11 is another milestone for obvious reasons. The federal government began throwing uh, military surplus at local law enforcement agencies, such that in terms of how they look, In terms of how they're equipped, in terms of how they are weaponized, America's police forces look more like the military than domestic peacekeepers.
2: I want to turn to remarks made by the New York police commissioner, Bill Bratton, who was speaking Sunday on Face the Nation.
5: Police officers come from the community. We don't bring them in from Mars, they come from the communities they police. And over the years, increasingly, we've had much more diversity in policing Muslim officers, increasing numbers of African-American officers, Latino officers. And that's a good thing because the community wants to see that. And that's part of the way we bridge the divide that currently exists between police and community, a divide that has been closing and a divide that we hope over time, and certainly here in New York, I can speak for our efforts here the last several years, myself and Mayor de Blasio, to not only bridge the divide, but to close it.
2: That's uh, Police Commissioner Bill Bratton. Your response?
3: Our police officers do, in fact, come from the community. As as Bill Bratton said, they don't come from Mars. They are uh, of us. They live among us. They are uh, motivated by a variety of different interests in becoming a police officer. It's not that, uh, that the candidates that we're selecting, necessarily, are poor candidates. It is what happens to them when they get acculturated by this law enforcement structure that makes it clear to them that they are on the front lines of a war against their own people. And so you get police officers heading out to to put in a shift who are feeling that the people are the the enemy.
6: enemy is at the gate. Where you are run when you are surrounded? What you are gonna do now know that the enemy is at Where you are run when you are surrounded?
7: It was already bad enough that two more Americans died because of apparently senseless police violence. Not that this made it an unusual week. Unfortunately, because that is what happens here. One of the hardest things to stomach about it was the continued indifference or open hostility toward our black community and their efforts to be treated as equal human beings. But now we know what it looks like when the whole country reacts appropriately, or most of us, to horribly tragic, unjustifiable violence we found out with the shootings in Dallas on Thursday and another incident Friday near St. Louis, an officer shot in the neck during a traffic stop. The outpouring of sympathy and anger, that is what is supposed to happen in the wake of violent, mindless deaths. Anyone's violent, mindless death. For whatever reason, one person after another dying over the past year, let alone the years before that, for selling cigarettes, or for selling CDs, or for having a busted taillight, or a child killed in milliseconds for carrying a toy gun. These two cry out to be appropriately mourned, to be marked, to be an impetus for change. And you know why it's not? You know why the killings of the poor and the non-white Americans may never be able to break through to the human conscience in this country? Ladies, gentlemen, everyone, hear ye the voice of Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, speaking to, of course, Fox News.
5: I grew up in a world, I've been around long enough that we've always had bad people, we've always had dangerous people. But the general public respected the police. Too many in the general public, who aren't criminals, but have a big mouth, are creating situations like we saw last night. This was obviously organized weeks ago because as someone said earlier this, this rally wasn't or this protest wasn't arranged until about this time yesterday morning. Mm-hmm. So this was going to happen at some point. These men were going to use a trigger moment. Um, all those protesters last night, they ran the other way expecting the men and women in blue to turn around and protect them. What hypocrites. And I understand I understand the First Amendment. I understand freedom of speech and I defend it. It is in our Constitution, it is in our soul, but you can't go out on social media and mainstream media and everywhere else, and say that 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 the police are racist, that the police are hateful, the police are killers. These are people. I'm t- I'm sick and tired of those who are who are protesting our police and uh, and putting their lives in danger. Where there's wrong, there's wrong, and that has to be addressed. But uh, this has got to stop, and it needs to stop now.
7: There's more. I will not inflict the whole thing on you. Your ears are not deceiving you. With five officers dead, seven people suffering gunshot wounds, this human-shaped clump of dirty cells lays the whole thing in the lap of his countrymen, daring to fight for some justice, some equality. He doesn't even name the two men who are the latest to have their names added to this endless roster, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. No, because you see... It was the people protesting the shooting of a guy who, it appears now, did not reach for a gun, or the high-achieving gift to his community, whose crime was being black in a stopped car. It was them, and the people protesting that injustice, who brought about the death of the officers in the bloody night hours. And again, your ears did not deceive you. He... Blamed the protesters for scattering away from flying bullets. He blamed human beings for their innate survivor instincts for trying to stay alive. Well, how dare they? If they wanted to protest the killings of their brothers and sisters, it was their job to stand there and be killed, right? And of course, you heard, (laughs) in case you didn't notice, the traditional longing for the good old days. Back when we all knew who the good guys and the bad guys were. When everyone respected the police. I am sure that is Dan Patrick's experience of the good old days. Now, why wouldn't it be? He is white. He is economically secure. He grew up where menly men were men. And the darkies knew their place. So how dare they start demanding to be treated as well. Well, as well as he's guaranteed to be treated every day. And this man is the lieutenant governor of one of our most populous, largest states. The same man who, by the way, tweeted out the morning a gay nightclub saw the greatest massacre in recent U.S. history, quote, "'Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows.'" Well, God bless America, huh? He deleted that, too by contrast, let's hear how another American approached this. Now, he shares the same skin color as the men and women who keep dying by cops, so of course he's biased. He's educated. His words are carefully parsed. By virtue of being an accomplished black man, of course, he is hopelessly biased against police and peace and the American way.
8: I will have more to say about this as the facts become more clear. Uh, for now, let me just say that Even as yesterday I spoke about our need to be concerned as all Americans about racial disparities in our criminal justice system, I also said yesterday that our police have an extraordinarily difficult job, and the vast majority of them do their job in outstanding fashion. I also indicated the degree to which we need to be supportive of those officers who do their job each and every day, protecting us and protecting our communities. Today is a wrenching reminder of the sacrifices that they make for us. We also know that when people are armed with powerful weapons, unfortunately, it makes attacks like these more deadly and more tragic.
7: In case you doubt, this is all our president's fault. Remember Joe Walsh, the hate-blinded racist who felt it appropriate to shatter any illusion of respect for the office of the president by shouting, You lie! in the middle of a State of the Union address? He was busy deleting tweets in the wake of the shootings, too. Or was he? Some pretty ugly remarks about, quote, uneducated black thugs are still standing, at least as of the time of this recording. But Joe Walsh former congressman, current radio hate monger, or someone, pulled the worst of the zingers. It said, quote, this is now war. Watch out, Obama. Watch out, Black Lives Matter punks. Real America is coming after you. Watch out, Obama. Watch out, Obama. Now, mind you, Joe Walsh said this was not a threat to the president. Holding a pitchfork in one hand, a flaming torch in the other, and signaling his listeners toward the gallows, he insisted that this was innocent commentary. Now, why is that tweet gone? Joe Walsh told the Chicago Tribune he didn't pull it. He says Twitter, and of course, he took the extra moment to point out how poisonously liberal Twitter and Facebook and all of them are, temporarily suspended his account until he agreed to delete it. The tweet is gone his putrid soul lingers on. Here's the deal. What Joe Walsh did was not merely offensive. It is arguably actionable on the part of a secret service. When social media participants pointed out that threatening the president is illegal and should be looked into, others chimed in that, eh, it's just an e-felony. But an e-felony is not a small deal. Per Wikipedia, which in turn cites reliable sources, The offense is punishable by up to five years in prison. A $250,000 maximum fine. A $100 special assessment. And three years of supervised release. Internet restrictions such as a prohibition on access to email have been imposed on offenders who made their threats by computer. Joe Walsh. Locked up for five years. $250,000 poorer without a computer. I could see that. I could get behind that. Now, I will fight to the death for him to keep his microphone, his free speech. That is, until someone starts shooting, in which case, please excuse my ducking. That's what bad liberals do under fire, you know.
8: Just as I thought it was going all right I find out I'm wrong when I thought it was right It's always the same It's just a shame That's all I could say. days
9: Basically, Philando Castile was stopped from the very moment he got his license through the moment of his death. That's
10: NPR reporter Ada Peralta talking about Philando Castile, the black man shot and killed during a recent police traffic stop near St. Paul, Minnesota. Philando Castile's story is the center of what we're getting into today. but now, you probably know his name. You've either watched or heard or read about the viral video his girlfriend, Diamond Reynolds, took just moments after he was shot by the police. We still don't know what led to the shooting, but what we do know from reporting is that Philando Castillo was pulled over by cops at least 46 times. 46 times in 14 years. So today, we're trying to understand more about what went on between Philando and the police before the video and before that very last stop. NPR correspondent Cheryl Corley reported on Philando Castillo's life and death from the ground in Minnesota. And NPR reporter Ada Peralta looked into the background of those traffic stops and some of the issues they raised. Thanks for coming in, y'all. You're welcome. Thank you. So, Ada, you look back at the reports for the dozens and dozens of times that Fernando Castile was stopped while he was driving by the police going back to 2002. And, Cheryl, you spent time with his family and police and others on the ground. First, Ada, can you just walk us through the timeline I remember you running over the other day like you should look at this you remember you running over with the list of the dates of his stops
9: so you might hear me flipping papers because I have a 28 page timeline here (sighs) And it's stop after stop. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first one goes back to the day before his 19th birthday. Um, he stopped. We don't actually know why he stopped. It doesn't we know say it's why. Not, it doesn't say why. We know it's not a, a moving violation. So mm-hmm. nothing obvious that you could tell from outside a car. Speeding or, you know, running through a stoplight. Um, but then he just seems to go through these cycles, right, where there's just fine after fine after fine. Stop after stop after stop. and In total, it's 46 of them, and only six of them are actually for something you would notice from outside the vehicle. This is the way I've been describing it. So the other 40 of them,
10: they don't have an explanation?
9: They do have an explanation, and it's mostly because he's driving with a suspended license Mm -hmm. or he's driving without insurance. But that's stuff you would find after you stop them. After you stop them. So we don't have an explanation as to why he was stopped so many times. But yeah, I mean, just to give you an idea, though. So he stopped on January eighth, two thousand and three. They stop him again on February third, then again on February twelfth, and again on February twenty-sixth, so and again like on March fourth.
10: Once every couple of weeks. This
9: is yeah, this is like
10: consistent,
9: yeah. right? And, and there's periods like this. There's there's at least one long two-year period where he's paying, you know, sometimes more than five hundred dollars. A month wow. consistently and he gets his license back and he has he's no just paying stops, off the fines. Right. So there's like a two year period where he's just paying fines and not getting stopped, and he has his license. But basically Fernando Castile was stopped from the very moment he got his license mm. through the moment of his death, right? That mm. was his last stop.
10: So uh Cheryl, I know that you spent some time in St. Anthony's. Can you sort of explain the geography?
11: Sure, sure. Well, you have St. Paul, the city proper, Twin City, along with uh, Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. And then you have a ring of suburbs around it. And Larpenter Street kind of separates many of the suburbs from St. Paul. And Castile got stopped on Larpenter and Fry in a suburb called Falcon Heights. Falcon Heights is patrolled by another suburb's police department, St. Anthony. Okay. So so the St. Anthony police patrol about three suburban areas, and Falcon Heights and uh, St. Anthony and, and uh, another area. So as he was driving along this street uh, is where he actually got stopped. That's kind of the lay of the land, St. Paul, many suburbs surrounding the city, and uh, Larpenter kind of being the dividing line that kind of separates them all.
10: And Cheryl, you said that uh, in, in the piece that you guys did on Morning Edition, you said that if anyone would have known the protocol for dealing with police in a stop like this, it would have been Philando Castillo because he'd been stopped so many times.
11: Absolutely. As Ader pointed out, you know, from the moment he got his uh, uh, permit, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> he had, had been stopped. So... You would imagine that he knew what happens when this actually occurs. Um,
10: And so a lot of black men there just mm -hmm. accept that they're going to be pulled over, right?
11: Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. I talked to an attorney in Minneapolis who deals with a lot of folks who go through this. Mm -hmm. And he says, yes, that a lot of people do get pulled over. Even he was surprised uh, a bit by the level of of, of times that, uh, Philando Castile got pulled over. But yeah, uh, talking to people in, in St. Paul and in Minneapolis, they say, yes, it's almost like a, a fact of life. Uh, you know, the phrase that many people use is, is driving while black. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if that's what happened with him. Um, but he did get pulled over a lot, and uh, a lot of uh, African Americans that I spoke with say it's not unusual for that to happen.
10: Did we have any sense of how many other people dealt with a similar level of stops?
11: Well, the attorney I spoke with in Minneapolis, who belongs to kind of a legal assistance agency, um thought that this level was somewhat unusual. Even when I talked to a police chief from another suburb, the Maplewood police chief there, he even had a a question about why so many stops. He said it does prompt, you know, the question about what was the basis Mm -hmm. of all of this. But he also talked about The policing priorities that, that any police department and any community has and, and what's happening out in the suburbs. And in some areas where you might not have a lot of calls, for instance, to like, if you're not dealing with robbery or burglary or somebody breaking into a home, Mm -hmm. or if your focus isn't like domestic violence or, or those types of things, then, you know, traffic enforcement might be one of the areas where your officers are going to be looking to do something because as the chief said, you know there's an expectation by people that we have police officers so what are they doing to make the community safe and if one of the thing, one of the things they want them to do is you know uh, can be uh, traffic stop police police everyone police
1: Today's episode is sponsored by Magoosh. They're here to take the pain out of standardized test prep, you know, adults remember them with a twinge of post-traumatic stress. Teens look forward to them with trepidation. But now, at least there's Magouche to bring the whole process into the 21st century. No more giant books and stacks of flashcards. Magouche offers affordable and effective test prep that is 100% online. You can log in anytime, anywhere, on your computer, tablet, or phone to study when you want, where you want. They provide online test prep for the GRE, GMAT, LSAT, SAT, ACT, TOEFL, and Praxis. And they even offer friendly email support from their team of expert tutors for when you get stuck on a problem or concept. Their test prep program starts at under $100 and they guarantee you'll improve your score or They'll give you your money back. Join the 1.5 million students who have chosen Magoosh. Go to magouche.com That's M-A-G-O-O-S-H.com right now and get 20% off with the code LEFT at checkout. Thanks, Magouche for your support. Prep smart. Go far. Enjoy the ride.
12: Testing is the number one place that you solve the root of police problems, of police brutality. There's a number of different tests they give uh, before you, you know, physical tests, make sure your heart's good, uh, you don't have any health problems, they give you a... an interview with a psychologist, they do background checks on you, they check all your past employers, they check your neighbors, they go to your neighborhood and say, is this guy a neighborhood bully? Does he come home drunk a lot? So, yeah, they do a lot. But the most important test is a personality test. It's called the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory Test, MMPI for short. MMPI is the most used personality test in the world. It's a series of 500 questions. This is not that intelligence test, okay? This is a personality test. Here's where they screw up. This is the place where you could eliminate so many of your bad cops. If you score too high on caring, empathy, uh, sensitivity, you're rejected. And the reason for that is cities look at things in a dollar and cents. You know, what's going to lose us money here? Which way can we hire and lose the least amount of money on recruits? They see recruits, if you're too sensitive or care too much, what happens is once you get out on the street, you can't handle the blood and guts. You can't handle the violence. So all this four to six months of training that they just paid for you, you quit, and now it's lost. What they don't realize is they're being uh, penny wise but dollar foolish because these hard asses that don't score high on caring and sensitivity they're the guys who are the the guys who commit brutality and those lawsuits go for or settle for 2.5 million, 1.8 million. That's that's nothing compared to the the thousands of dollars you would lose on a recruit. But here's the other fallacy with that. Nobody sees more blood and guts than emergency room nurses. You don't see an outpouring of emergency room nurses quitting after three or four months in an emergency room. No. Other ones, social workers. Social workers see the same thing we see. Caring, sensitive people can do the job, and they can do it with caring. And, boy, you do a job like that, people love the police.
1: Absolutely. Well, Thank you. If there's anything else that
4: you want to add in, um, go ahead.
12: Well, I would just like to add this about police brutality. I was a brutal cop, and I, I have to let people know that the occupation is such that it hardens you very quickly. I was a ghetto cop 19 to 24 years. My first 10 years were patrol officer in the ghetto. I started out as a real nice, sensitive, caring guy. I was beating people within a year, year and a half. Uh, it breeds that because every day, and I was a sensitive guy. Can you imagine what an insensitive guy getting a job would do? How fast? Every day you run into hostility. Every day you're confronting people who are angry with you. You have to arrest them. So they're they're upset. They're going to fight you. They spit at you. Every police department has this saying, by the way. There are two type of citizens, two type of people: cops and assholes. That becomes that comes about because that's all cops deal with. They lose sense of the real world in the ghetto, in the ghetto. Have to make that distinction. And subsequently, for me, you combat that problem first by hiring very caring people. But even like I said, with me, I became brutal. Second, you have to have mandatory counseling. now, right now they have counseling. If a, a supervisor sees an officer and he thinks he should go to counseling, he can mandate it. A couple of reasons they don't. Number one, the supervisor wants to be liked. And if that supervisor mandates somebody to counseling, all the other cops know that cop now has a stigma. He had to go. There's something mentally wrong with him. So all the cops think, is my supervisor going to send me for mental counseling? So if you make it... Oh, and by the way, a former president of the Fraternal Order Police, the Philadelphia Union, he said when he was, they were bargaining with the city, the city wanted a counseling program. He said the only, and this is an example that the president of the union said. So all the cops look up to the president of the union, more than the, the police commissioner. He said the only stress program a cop needs is a shot and a mug of beer. What message got a, see that macho image? No cop is going to say, hey, I I need help. So if it's mandatory, like every three months, a ghetto cop is mandated to go to counseling, it loses that stigma because all the cops know, well, it's mandated. He has to go. I have to go. She has to go. The stigma is totally lost. And I guarantee you, even the hardest, toughest cop, maybe after two or three visits, but that cop will break down and he'll tell you what, what it's doing to his life, how it's changed him or her or her. Uh, and so if you have, you have to have mandatory counseling and you have to also then have officers reassigned to different areas where they're not constantly in that district, in that environment.
4: Well, a Facebook Live video has gone viral of a black female police officer speaking out against police violence. This is Officer Nakia Jones of Warrensville Heights, Ohio.
11: How dare you stand next to me in a same uniform and murder somebody? How dare you? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. So why don't we just keep it real. If you're that officer, then no good and well you got a God complex. You're afraid of people that don't look like you. You have no business in that uniform. Take it off. If you're afraid to go and talk to an African-American female or a male or a Mexican male or female because they're not white like you, take the uniform off. You have no business being a police officer. Because there's many of us that will give our life for anybody. And we took this oath and we missed it. If you are that officer that's precious, take the uniform off and put the KKK hoodie on.
4: That was Officer Nakia Jones uh, speaking from uh, Warrensville Heights, Ohio. Uh, Norm Stamper, your response uh, to what she said?
3: I've heard that six times now, maybe. Uh, and each time I get goosebumps, and each time I get a little emotional. Uh, everybody's talking about a conversation about race. I believe in dialogue. I believe it's important for us to expose our true feelings uh, in safe settings. I really do believe in all of that, but I also believe very firmly that white police officers, those who are so inclined uh, to to uh, uh, act on whatever prejudice they may have, need to listen to this woman. They need to hear every single word she said. She is expressing the rage of an entire people. She is expressing her truth about her fellow, uh, 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 her brothers and sisters in law enforcement. How dare they exhibit the kind of racism that suggests, among other things, their own internal prejudice and their own fear. If prejudice means anything, it means ignorance and fear. And if we don't confront it forcefully, as she has done, uh, I'm afraid we're going to continue to have polite conversations that will get us nowhere.
2: Norm Stamper, why aren't these police officers who are seeing on video gun down people whether it is Alton Sterling um, or Philando Castile, um, whether it is here in New York, Delaron Small, a man who now we have a video of, uh, was involved in some kind of traffic altercation with another man, went up to his car. The man blew him away. It turned out he was just coming off the job as a police officer that night, uh, Wayne Isaacs. We have the video. There is the evidence. Why aren't these police officers arrested?
3: In part, I'll speak for the state of Washington. Uh, We have laws on the books that require malice of intent to be established. The King County prosecutor, in in which uh, uh, Seattle is one of the cities, has said these are awful but lawful uh, instances. He would like to prosecute. Uh, for example, a police officer that shot and killed a man in 2010 in Seattle. Uh, was a terrible shooting. It was an egregious shooting. Uh, the, in fact, the department called it that, I'm pleased to say. And as they were preparing to fire this individual, he quit. So he uh, avoided a dismissal from the force, although technically you can call that a constructive termination. But But the satisfaction that comes from firing a cop who does something like this, pales by comparison to the prosecution of a police officer who, if he was a, uh, if if he were a a, a citizen in the African-American community, would be prosecuted. And people see this and people wonder about it. How does justice apply to one group and not another group? That speaks certainly to the, instit- the larger institutional issue, which, which does get to our laws. It also gets to the need for independent prosecution of these cases.
9: Officer, officer, sorry, but I got that on tape. No more blood on your hands. No more lying in
13: my face. By tonight,
1: by tonight, a million people will know your name.
14: And before long, before long, they'll change the laws to quell our rage.
15: Dallas Police Chief David Brown uh, has been praised for his community-based policing efforts in Dallas, both before and since the shootings last week. Uh, That effort has resulted in a marked drop, a marked drop in the city's crime rate since he began, since Brown began his program uh, over the years of his tenure by hiring more cops from within the city of Dallas itself and reducing the use of force confrontations with the public. So, you know, real things that really make a difference rather than platitudes and nonsense like, well, we need more good guys with guns. Chief Brown spoke to the media at an hour-long press conference earlier today. He said a lot of really good stuff that needs to be heard. Uh, he said, and so i want to play some of this. Uh, he said, among many other things, that he has no plans, no plans to change what he has been doing, to change from the community policing uh, model that has served Dallas so well now for so many years since he has been there, that it has served to drastically lower the crime rate and the number of excessive force complaints in the city of Dallas uh, since Chief Brown has come in and instituted the model that encourages guardian cops over uh, warrior cops in the community.
6: 2015, just last year, was our unprecedented 12th consecutive year of crime reduction for a total of a 53% reduction in crime, more than any major city in this country during that period. And they've done this by also protecting the civil rights of our citizens through community policing. And in addition to that, in 2015, we had a 67% reduction in excessive force complaints. We average over 150 to 200 every year for the past 33 years, and last year we had 14. Wow. The overall crime rate here in Dallas is at a 50-year low. This tragic incident will not discourage us from, from continuing the pace of urgency in changing and reforming policing in America. We are committed to community policing. It it is, in the 21st century, it is the best way to police our country. It's the best way. And we have led the country for 12 consecutive years in crime reduction by doing that type of policing. Community policing works. It makes us all safer
15: that was uh chief david brown a police chief of dallas uh at a press conference today what a marked difference uh in his response in the response of the dallas police uh compared to so many incidents we have seen uh over the past few years and frankly if any police department had a right to sort of go nuts at this point, it would be the uh, the Dallas police who just lost uh, five of their own, saw 12, uh, it was 11 or 12 shot in this one incident. If they had, you know, if anyone had an excuse to crack down on what is going on in their city, it is Dallas. But the Dallas police have not behaved that way, did not behave that way on uh, on Thursday night and have not behaved that way since. They are, as far as I'm concerned, uh, a model to the nation. David Brown is a model to the nation. He was also asked about uh, the, de- the debate over guns at the press conference and, uh, frankly, the lack of action on them. Here was Chief Brown's response.
6: But there's a greater role in policymaking, and folks just need to do their job. There's, there's too many things we all agree on, on both sides of the aisle, that we hadn't gotten done. And, and the issues have been... Long discussed, I can't stand watching cable news anymore. It's been discussed, you know, for forever. And it's, we're just not getting to a place where we do anything. And that's the frustration for police officers, is is that we all know what needs to be done that we agree on, let's get that done. Well, something on guns, you know, I was asked, well, what's your opinion about guns? Well, ask the policymakers to do something and then I'll give you an opinion. Put, Put a law out there and I'll give you an opinion about it. But to have me do that job? I'll pass on that. Get in that debate and get swallowed up by both sides who are entrenched in their positions. I I want no part of that. Do your job. We're doing ours. Mm. We're putting our lives on the line. Other aspects of government need to step up and help us.
15: Yeah. Step up and help us. Step up and help them, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Don't just say we need to have their back. Listen to what Chief Brown is telling you. Listen to what he's saying. Listen to him saying that there's stuff that both sides agree on. That 80 and 90 percent of Americans agree on. Just these low-hanging fruit gun safety issues we've talked about on this show so much, so often, so recently. uh, You know, uh, about closing the background check loopholes uh, at gun shows and online. Uh, trying to do something for, you know, to keep uh, folks who are on the terrorist watch list from being able to walk into any gun store and buy weapons of mass destruction, just like Al Qaeda has told their people they can here in these United States. There is stuff both sides agree on, as David Brown put it. So pass the law and then he can talk to you about it. He is asking you, uh, step up and help us. And of course, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and all of the others clinging to their guns at the NRA are doing just the opposite. They are not giving cops the uh, the tools, the gun safety measures that those cops have been begging for for so many years. In the meantime, those same politicians continue to ask more and more of police, of police themselves, rather than provide real services to the community Because, God forbid, they might have to raise taxes to pay for what the people actually need and one. Instead, we'll just ask the cops to do it. We'll just ask the same folks who we pretend to support, uh, the the same folks who, who act like they're supporting cops but really aren't. And instead, they're just piling more and more on them, asking them to solve all of society's ills. Dallas PD Chief David Brown spoke about that at his press conference today as well.
6: Uh, what we're doing, and what we're trying to accomplish here is above challenging. It, it is. We're asking cops to do too much in this country. We are. We're just asking us to do too much. Every societal failure, we put it off on the cops to solve. Not enough mental health funding that the cop handle. Not enough drug addiction funding. Let's give it to the cops. Here in Dallas, we got a loose dog problem. Let's have the cops chase loose dogs. You know, schools fail. Give it to the cops. Um, 70% of the African community is being raised by single women. Let's give it to the cops to solve that as well. That's too much to ask. Policing was never meant to solve all those problems. And I just ask for other parts of our democracy, along with the free press, to help us. If anything could be done, it needs to be done by uh, our our public, which includes the protesters, to have greater concern about the requirements that it puts on law enforcement when you have spontaneous protests or even planned protests to ensure their safety, but not to be inconsiderate of the officer's safety. That's, that's what could be done different. If something can be done, it's, it's going to be done in the public square. It's going to be done by our citizens understanding that uh, this democracy requires their participation.
15: Couldn't be prouder, couldn't be happier to see a guy like David Brown heading up the Dallas PD. So finally, Desi Doyen, <laughs> and I've been able to say something nice about your home state of Texas. Yeah,
7: I, I have to say, um, you know, he is a third generation Dallasite and he is a 33 year veteran of mm. the Dallas Police Department. And when they hired him, he was very clear he was going to implement the community policing policies. And those have thankfully Proven the efficacy of the community policing model and the guardian policing model. And I I hope that uh, this is something that will actually sink into the brains and minds of politicians and especially police departments across the country. This works.
15: Good for them. Good for him. Good for Dallas. The sentence I thought you probably thought (laughs) you'd never hear me say. Uh, And it's not just Brown, it is, uh, you know, much as a fish rots from the head down, I guess a fish also. Uh, does well from the head down. I don't Uh, know how to twist that metaphor, metaphor but the point is... Uh, the, uh, Dallas PD major Max Garon wrote about this. He had worked a 27 hour shift, uh, that night came in, uh, amidst this, uh, pandemonium and was directing a lot of what was going on right there on the ground. And he wrote this fantastic description of what he went through that night. And in the, the hours after, I just want to read one part, uh, from, from the end of his uh, remarks, cause they were really remarkable. Um, He writes, uh, we are guardians, absolutely. We are affected by these moments of extreme violence directed at us, however. And this is where the warrior mindset was born, in that hellish situation of being fired upon, working tactically to overcome that threat. Being strong and conquering one's uh, fear and staying alive, that is the appropriate place for the warrior in a gun battle. Not a warrior pitted against a segment of the populace, but rather a warrior trying to stay alive against one trying to kill you. These men who died were men of guardian hearts, protecting citizens' constitutional rights as warriors in a battle for their lives. And that dichotomy is a sense of struggle for me as an advocate for stronger police-community relations, An inclusive, in-group identity for citizen and police where they're not pitted against one another. It is imperative that we continue to deal with and overcome inherent bias and its effects on human beings. All this during a tense time in our nation. He writes, so I need more sleep. I need to grieve. I need to do my job, and I need to lead officers of whom I am extremely proud to serve alongside. These are truly men and women who are guardians of the city of Dallas. We can improve how we deal with conflict and de-escalate tense situations, and we can also support a police department with a history of reaching out and of inclusivity with its citizenry. These are my thoughts. I'm struggling like the rest of my brothers and sisters in blue, and I wanted to share these thoughts. Major Max Guerin, Dallas Police Department, July 9, 2016, uh, just hours after uh, Major Guerin lost uh, a lot of friends, a lot of colleagues in uh, in that one horrible night in Dallas.
1: As you've likely heard by now, each year I raise money for climate change organizations through Climate Ride. That means that I pledge to ride my bike some super long distance, do a whole lot of work in exchange for donations. This year, I'm going from Acadia National Park in Maine down to Boston. You do 300 miles in about five days. So not for the faint of heart. I've started my train rides, and to be honest, I am feeling a little bit out of shape, so I've got a lot of hard work ahead of me to do, and the donations have started to flow, which is great. We're quickly approaching $2,000, but I've got a ways to go to hit my team goal of 5,500. Now, at the same time, I always need to raise money for this show, so this year I'm doing a two-in-one fundraiser with a special deal for anyone who makes a tax-deductible donation to Climate Ride and signs up as a member of the show. Of course, you don't have to do both, uh, but if you do do both, I have a special offer for you. I'm giving away free Best of Left t-shirts that are not available at any other time except during special fundraisers like this. And that's for anyone who contributes at least $25 to the climate ride and also signs up as a member to the show to help us keep going strong. But wait, there's more. Members get access to bonus content. This is normal. This is what always happens. Uh, if you sign up for a membership, you get a weekly extended commentary from me on, you know, this or that topic. Sometimes I have bonus clips. Sometimes there's member feedback voicemails, that sort of thing. And this week, I broke down the open letter titled, An Open Letter on Identity Politics to and from the Left. It was written by a large and diverse group. Uh, who started the hashtag "We are the Left?" And basically it was trying to call attention to the existence of sexism and other similar isms within the left, trying to dispel the idea that those things are purely conservative or Republican problems. And actually, to be more accurate, I didn't so much break down the original letter as I broke down the reaction to it. Uh, The letter was interesting, but the reaction to it was fascinating, so you are going to want to hear that. For details, just go to bestoftheleft.com, click on the big summer fundraiser banner where you will be directed on how to contribute to my climate ride, sign up as a member, and submit your thank you gift t-shirt order. Thanks so much for your support
6: you us we fight
1: the you reached the activism portion of today's show now that you're informed and angry here's what you can do about it today's activism into the culture of warrior policing now I don't need to tell you that the news has been awful everywhere you look are stories and videos of death and injustice And I get that you may sometimes just want to shut it all out, but we're asking today for you to allow yourself to get enraged by the news and to channel that rage toward making our broken and racist systems finally work for everyone. According to the ACLU, a typical police cadet spends about eight hours on de-escalation training. Only eight hours. That is simply not enough to counter the inherent racial biases that we all have that lead to profiling and fear, and is sadly contradictory to the increasing militarization of our police departments. This conversation isn't about bad apples. This is about a terrifying lack of emphasis on the idea of protecting and serving and the deeply rooted racism that affects us all, including individual police officers and the system they work within. Right now in Congress, there is a bill called the Preventing Tragedies Between Police and Communities Act of 2016. If passed, the Preventing Tragedies Bill would require police to be trained on de-escalation techniques that focus on preserving life. The legislation builds upon Police Executive Research Forum guiding principles on use of force and its belief that, quote, the preservation of life has always been at the heart of American policing, unquote. You can sign the ACLU petition titled End the Culture of Warrior Policing to support this bill by visiting ACLU.org and searching for Warrior Policing. The ACLU also recently sent a letter to Congress urging them to pass the Preventing Tragedies Bill as well as the following bills when they return from recess. The Law Enforcement Trust and Integrity Act, the End Racial Profiling Act, the Stop Militarizing Law Enforcement Act the Police Camera Act, and the Due Process Act. We urge you to call and write your legislators to make sure they know you support the passage of these critical bills as well. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If making sure our police departments truly protect and serve all is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about ending the culture of lawyer policing via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. Please know that signing a petition and calling your legislators is not enough. These are just two things in a long list that you can do to help fight for police reform and support our persecuted brothers and sisters of color. So get mad, get in the streets, fight with your racist relatives and friends, vote for candidates who support police reform, and challenge America's systemic racism every damn day. Because your silence says more than you'll ever know.
6: Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed? Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now. Because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change.
10: So we wanted to zoom out a little bit and talk to Mm -hmm. Khalil Gibran Muhammad. He's a professor at Harvard. His book, his very influential book, is called The Condemnation of Blackness. It's about the history of crime and race and policing in America. So as you can imagine, he's been cited a whole lot in recent years. And Shireen, you got a chance to sit down with him. I wish I could have been part of that talk, too. Here is your conversation.
4: I noticed there was a lot of talk, even in mainstream media outlets, after these two videos came out. After these protests were happening because of them, the conversation was about the need to change police culture. It was about putting a stop to excessive use of force so these incidents don't occur over and over again. And I have to say, 24 hours later, to me, I feel like the conversation has changed to the condemnation of the killing of the police officers in Dallas. And I'm wondering, how do we have both those conversations at the same time? And do you think we are having both those conversations at the same time?
0: First of all, I think we must have both those conversations at the same time. So we ought to be clear about what should be happening. But I also think that there's an imbalance uh, in who speaks in terms of the capacity to understand that that police violence, uh, as is felt by African-Americans and blacks more generally in America cannot continue. That, that's a hard stop. Mm-hmm. The problem is that uh, there are significant pockets of the majority population of whites in America who are ambivalent about whether or not uh, those African-Americans and others who have been killed uh, is, is somehow justified. And juries and judges have essentially co-signed on that belief. Consequently, uh, at the other extreme, we have a a heroism attached to the occupation of policing, where people who are police officers are wrapped in the cloth of patriotism as making sacrifices on behalf of the nation. And this has eliminated the possibility that we can have a both-and conversation Mm -hmm. uh, because of the scale of the unwillingness to come to terms with some basic facts about policing. And this is not just about when police officers shoot or use excessive force. It's also about the culture of policing and the way in which communities are actually treated on a day-to-day basis. How do
4: we write that imbalance? How do we write that?
0: Well, we have to insist that our political leaders start dealing with both The history of our present, which is a history of sustained uh, policing in black communities that is wholly and fundamentally different than it is in the rest of America. That's a fact. And there are a number of scholars, from historians to criminologists to others, who can attest to that fact. The issue for politicians is addressing it not as a kind of form of political correctness, as we hear so much about, but fundamentally addressing the issue of, It cannot turn on the issue of crime in the black community as if these uh, communities deserve to be discriminated against or subject to forms of excessive force. That's a false equivalency. The fact is that individuals in black communities deserve the same respect as individuals in white communities, no matter who in their community breaks the law. That's a fact. And we're not there yet. And our politicians are not governing as such.
4: You're a historian. I'm curious, is is there historical precedent for a week like we've had this week? Can you look back in history and say, hey, this has happened before?
0: Well, I thought about this and um, things have happened so quickly. And, and I can't say that there's something equivalent to this. Uh, but what we do have are earlier episodes of urban uprisings. Uh, I can think of Newark uh, in particular in 1967, where uh, there were African-Americans battling on the streets with law enforcement in response to ongoing and systemic claims and cries of police brutality. And that was and it, sparked
4: by the a taxi driver being beat up by two police officers?
0: That That's correct. And in, in that instance, not only did you have the instance of protests, which led eventually to rioting as a form of an uprising, But then you had uh, allegations of snipers shooting at police and firefighters. Uh It turned out in the end that there was no evidence of snipers, but it created the context that looks very similar to this moment. And that was a moment that led to the Kerner Commission report and ultimately a decision that the structural causes of inequality and racism had to be front and center in any future that improved police and community relations. We learned that lesson in 1968. And we've forgotten it ever since.
4: So there was the beating of a black taxi driver by two white cops, which created civil unrest. Yet it ultimately ended in um, a commission that said this is the result of systemic inequality and racism. That's correct. So how do we get from from where we are now to that same point where where we were in 1968? How do we get the conversation to go full circle?
0: In part, uh, the strategies of the civil rights movement uh, was a strategy of compromise to some extent. And that compromise was a form of respectability politics Mm. uh, that essentially said, uh, we're going to be perfectly articulate, we're going to be perfectly dressed, uh, we're going to be nonviolent and we're going to fit a model of exceptionalism uh, that... You will then say, How could we not let them eat at our table? How could we not let them live in our neighborhood? How could we not let them enter our schools? And that's not the full measure of humanity. We cannot or no longer say to black people, you have to be twice as good to have the half the measure of freedom in this country. So you should be able to be poor, you should be able to be doing something illegally that is nonviolent and live. To face a day in court. That should be able to happen in this country. That's the end of it.
4: You know, yesterday I spoke with Jelani Cobb, who embedded with the Newark Police Department recently and did uh, the Frontline documentary about that. And one thing that he said was that he talked to retired officers who told him, you think things are bad now? Things were were much worse, and things have gotten better. I'm wondering, as a historian, what do you think about that? Has there been incremental change since 1968 for the better?
0: Well, I think if we're talking about cultures of policing, I think that police officers uh, function today in a way. Uh, that has systematically mass criminalized uh, black and brown populations. I, I, that's just a fact. You can't get to the problem of mass incarceration without the problem. Of hotspot, CompStat policing, uh, the war on drugs, all of it, and I think many people would agree that mass incarceration is a step in the wrong direction. Seven million people under some form of uh, criminal justice supervision is a step in the wrong direction in a moment where we're supposed to be two generations removed from the civil rights movement, and policing is at the as at the center of that. They are the starting point. If you don't, if, if there's no arrest, then there's no mass incarceration. I would say that to the extent that uh, police officers um, may be more sensitive as a result of implicit bias training, Um, perhaps that's better. But I I think the kind of old discretion that police officers had with regard to knowing the community came with its own positives uh, that we've lost. Police officers today are far less inclined to be on the street. I, Uh. I worked in Harlem for the past five years. You can't find Uh, police officers who are walking the streets saying hi to the people uh, and their neighbors, period.
4: So you're saying things have gotten worse.
0: I'm saying that Mm -hmm. on one hand, uh, things have gotten worse because our police officers have put the greatest population of people behind bars in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. That's bad. It's terrible. In a moment when crime has been falling for 20 years, I might add. On another hand, I would say that uh, police officers Uh, have the capacity today to be uh, better people in the sense that we are further along our racial divide in in terms of uh, day-to-day relationships. People are much more likely today uh, to have a genuine encounter across the color line than they were in 1968. And where that is possible, I think all things are better.
1: We just heard clips featuring Democracy Now! interview an ex-police chief condemning systemic police racism. Angie Coiro, while sitting in as a guest host on the broadcast, broke down the various reactions to the violence against civilians and police. Code Switch took a look at Philando Castile's driving record and why he'd been stopped at least 46 times. Act Out spoke with a retired police officer who explained the need for mandatory counseling for active police. Democracy Now! highlighted the viral video of the black female officer from Ohio who went online to rail against her prejudiced brothers and sisters in blue. The broadcast played us the comments of Dallas Police Chief David Brown on the efficacy of community policing and replacing the warrior cop mindset with a guardian cop mindset. Our activism for today is in support of the ACLU's push for police reform legislation. And finally, we just heard Code Switch speak with Professor Muhammad from Harvard about crime, race, and policing. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. And this first call is taking us back a couple of episodes. Gabriel originally called in to express frustration with the progressive media in general, their tendency to focus on the sexual orientation of the Orlando shooter. I responded in that episode with my thoughts on why I thought it was sort of a valid and important issue to deal with. And this is his response.
14: Hey, Jay, this is Gabriel from Texas again. Love the show. Uh, I think you misunderstand. I do believe he's a victim. A guy with a failed marriage, his father discouraged homosexuality, who confused him, who hung out at the gay nightclub, eventually had problems with the dichotomy of life. Yeah, our society has never been that kind to the gay lifestyle. Yeah, we feel bad about it. But I wasn't answering a question of is he the victim or not? I was answering a question of how the media betrays it, how the media deals with his homosexuality and how they inevitably focused on it to the detriment of actually asking the question of what happened, of why it happened, and how do we deal with that. For instance, it's the same way that you can name the shooter's name, but you can't name his victim's name. Our country and our media focuses on the brokenness of the person who has the gun. But I think in this case, when dealing with the concept of his homosexuality, it blinded people to more aspects of it than just that. It sort of zeroed in on that, and it gave fuel for homophobes, and it ended the conversation for those who are not homophobes. I don't doubt that his life was hard. And I even made mention that, yes, society broke him, yes, those things are bad. But if we're going to stop it, we need to focus on what happened. We need to focus on what's wrong. And we need to focus on what happened to him. And we need to correct that societally. And we need to get over homophobia. And I believe that comes into play with why way he was raised. But in the moments after the shooting, that wasn't the focus. When it came down to his gay lifestyle, it was more like watching a Hollywood tabloid that it wasn't actually asking the question why he came to that. I will, I will agree that the Young Turks, I didn't feel like they did that a disservice mind you. I don't think that. But, look at the mainstream media. Oh, let's talk to the lover. Oh, let's see if he's on Grinder. Just breaking news. This guy was gay. Oh. Big whoop. We still have dead people. And now we know the name of the shooter and what he looks like on Grinder. So what? Yeah, I understand. And I'm not trying to minimize how he was broken. But I had him saying that it was overly accentuated in the media. And it was overly brought up. And it became the end point to a lot of conversations. As individuals, as a society, we represent a group by what we think of them. Our brains just are going to tether to it. We have us versus them mentality. We can look at our politics right now and see it. You can look and see it in racism. It's an unfortunate truth. And as soon as they accentuated that he was gay set him in a camp that wasn't the camp of just the shooter, it was the gay shooter. And I don't think him being gay is the point that we should take away from him. I think it's unfortunate what happened to him. And yeah, he is a victim of things. Everybody is a victim of things. You can't live through life and not be a victim of something. But in the end, he pulled the trigger and killed 49 people. And we ended the conversation with he's gay and a lot of different mainstream people. I think that's the disservice that I was hoping to address.
13: Anyways, love the show. I'll talk to you later. Hello, all of Bessel Left and Jay. Ryan Phoenix chiming in. I got done listening to the 1029 episode about all the recent waves of hostility and violence surrounding the shootings and the Dallas police shootings. And all that. And the episode that, uh, or the acts of that episode that was struck home for me was that 19 year old who called in to the Dixon show I think he was talking about how frustrating it is being strong all the time and not seeing progress and for me that really uh, was a powerful message because it gives me something to point to uh, when I talk to my relatives or my white friends who are just frustrated with the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, the, the disruptions that the protests make and everything. And now I have something that I'm going to start sharing with them, that there is so much frustration that's being built up in the black community that they don't know what more to do. They're having peaceful demonstrations, and they're getting frustrated that people are countering back with All Lives Matter or black li- or Blue Lives Matter rather than Black Lives Matter, here's something that should hit home for everybody, that if Black Lives Matter protests are out across the country and they're peaceful and they're demonstrating and they're having a united voice that brings people around and has, starts conversations, especially the conversations that are happening between city police officers, and their police departments and the community like it's those conversations that are that are starting up being organized out of reaction to the black lives matter protests that are some of the most productive things that i see coming out of the protests and if those if those productive things don't happen if those productive conversations don't help programmatically change things or systematically change things, then we're going to continue to see the black community more and more frustrated And more and more frustration is going to lead to less rational behavior from people. I mean, they're humans, like they're frustrated. So give them some sign of progress on this issue. Be open, be sympathetic. That's all we can ask. And if you can't even muster up a little bit of sympathy, then shut the fuck up. Thanks, Jay.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Today, I just wanted to catch up on our Climate Ride fundraiser, a big summer fundraiser going on. Things are going well But as always, uh, things slow down in the middle. Uh, This is how fundraisers work. I know how they work. They make me panic every time. And then everything always works out okay. So I think that's going to happen again. But we're in that middle part where I begin to panic. So what happens is I announce a big fundraiser. And all the people who are like super on the ball, totally motivated, they get right in there. And they donate right away. And that's fantastic. We, we get off to an excellent start. And at the end, I say, uh-oh, we're getting towards the end. And we're not quite there yet. Please help us get there. And we get a bunch of uh, superheroes who swoop in at the last moment to save the day. And in the middle, uh, I begin to wonder how all of this is going to play out. Uh, so we are currently at j- just over $1,800 raised of a $5,500 Total goal for the best of the left team. Uh, my brother and I are uh, raising money together, and and so I've, I've explained this in a previous episode. So uh, if if you go to my fundraising page, you'll see the uh, you know the, the thermometer that fills up doesn't have a total there of 5,500. I'm trying to help raise money for both of us for the team as a whole. Uh, so like I said, we're we're at 1,800. We've got a bunch of people to thank. A lot of generous people have been uh, signing up recently. So of course. I want to thank Elsie, Anonymous, Melanie, Matt, Rob, Blaine, Alan, Dennis, Dondi, Tara, Ian, Christopher, Leslie, Michael, Anne, Mark, Tara, Bud, Nicholas, and another anonymous. So huge thanks to all of you. You are uh, you're keeping the flow going, which is uh, helping to abate my panic a little bit, because there's still some uh, donations coming in, but if you're one of those people who's like, oh yeah, I've been meaning to do that, I'll I'll make sure to get it in before the end, uh, you can also help abate my panic if you go to Best of Left right now, donate right now in the middle of the fundraiser, and that'll make me feel better as we go on. A couple other little finicky details, as I've said, if you donate to both Climate Ride fundraiser and become a member at the same time, you're eligible to get a free item of apparel, either a t-shirt or a hoodie sweatshirt, depending on your level of membership. And to hopefully clear up any confusion, the link will come in your confirmation email saying, this is where you should go to request your item of apparel. So once you have uh, donated to either Climate Ride become a member. It says, okay, here's where you go to request your item. Hopefully uh, that's clear enough for people. And if you are already a member, I've said this in the past, but I I need to do a better job of making this clear. If you were already a member and you donate to Climate Ride, then I, I would love nothing more than to just give you a free shirt or a hoodie to say thank you for your months or years of support of the show. I would love to do that. But I cannot do that. That would be so painfully expensive that I, I just um, – it would go entirely against the reasoning of the fundraiser, which is that we need more money to help run the show smoothly and can't uh, start giving a whole lot away. Uh, but what I can do is happily sell you as many items, uh, t-shirts or hoodies, whatever you would like at cost. Uh, that is my way of being able to say thank you. That – I will uh, let you purchase these things and not profit from that. Uh, Unfortunately, that's the best I can do at the moment. As I said, I wish I could do more. And then lastly, just a heads up, that all of the t-shirt and hoodie orders will be sent out in October. That is the current plan. We'll get all the orders in. Everyone signs up for a membership or climate ride or makes their purchases at cost, whatever the situation Uh, We'll get everything squared away and then put in one big order all at the same time, and they all get sent out together. That, I believe, is everything you need to know. Thanks again to everyone who has donated either to Climate Ride or has become a member or both. Literally, none of this is possible without all of your support. And thanks, as always, to everyone who will have donated soon to either of these great causes or both. As usual, keep those comments coming in on the show, the number to dial. 202 999 3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
3: And it's a and shame How we get so trained stories and